Welcome to Family Room Discussions, where you invite me, Dalton Anderson, to your Come Follow Me study, and we discuss ideas, questions, and insights to the week's lesson. I am not a church historian or a scripture scholar. I am your average saint seeking to build my faith in Christ and deepen my testimony of the gospel and the scriptures, and I have found that by discussing Come Follow Me with others, it helps me to do just that. My sincere hope is that you will allow me to join in your gospel dialogue. With that introduction, let's start this family room discussion. Sisters and brothers, family and friends, this is episode 26, following along with Worth the Riches of the Whole Earth, Doctrine and Covenants, section 67 to 70. This episode marks the halfway mark of the year, which is pretty crazy for me because I feel like time has gone far too fast, especially considering that last year feels like it just never happened. So, uh, yeah, kind of a cool mark, but this is the halfway point of the year. We just got back, my family and I got back from a trip to Lake Powell. We were at, spent the week there on the on the lake on my parents' houseboat and had an excellent time. I was able to surf, which is like my favorite activity, and got to spend time with my kids and my wife, and, and it was just, an, just a great vacation, you know? It, it's always good to be able to, to get out, rejuvenate, and kind of recenter yourself, and that's what it was for me. So it was a great week. Today is Father's Day. Uh, this episode will be coming out tomorrow, but t- today is Father's Day, and I'd like to wish all you fathers out there a happy Father's Day. I once was in a ward where I spoke on Father's Day, and I got up, and in the introduction I explained that if we look at things with an eternal perspective, assuming that we live worthy of the celestial kingdom and celestial glory, and uh, the top degree of the celestial kingdom, then even if we're not fathers now, or if we're, if the opportunity to be a father in this life is not given to us, we can have faith in the fact that we will one day have the opportunity to be an eternal father, or a heavenly father, if you will. And I I gave that introduction, and I went on with, you know, my tribute to fathers, and and what fathers mean to me, and and, and all of that. And I remember at the end of church, they were giving out a, uh, I think it was pie, pie to the dads in the ward, or whatever, and one of the, the single guys he was like gonna go get his piece of pie and one of the dads joked with him and they were like hey man this is only for this is this is only for the dads and this guy was like well the guy talking today said that as long as i live worthy of the blessings i'll actually be a dad you know through an eternal lens so i'm just gonna take my pie now and i laughed because i was standing right behind him he didn't realize i was right there but i was like well at least something I had said had gotten picked up by somebody in that lesson. But I do believe that with all my heart that whether you have the blessings of being a dad in this life or not, if you live worthy of uh, celestial glory, then you can rest assured that we may all be celebrating Father's Day at some future time. So whether you are or whether you aren't, happy Father's Day to all you uh, eternal dads in the making. And I, I think it's a lot better just to think of it through an eternal lens sometimes. Uh, but with that, I also want to pay tribute to my own uh, my own mortal dad. Um, you may not know this about me. I am half adopted. Half adopted because my mom is my mom. Uh, the woman, Amy Reese Anderson, is the woman who gave birth to me. But my dad, Roland Anderson, was not... The, uh, he's not my biological father. Um, 
He's my stepdad, and he adopted me when I was 18 years old. Uh, that him and my mom married when I was 14, but due to other factors, had to wait uh, until I was 18 for him to be able to adopt me, and it was something that I had really wanted uh, for a long life story. I don't really have a relationship with my biological father um, for, for a couple factors, but I think the main factor for me was that he just, uh, my biological father, for, for one reason or another, wasn't able, was not capable of being the dad I needed and uh, wasn't able to learn those lessons when he needed to, to be able to be there for me. And so I'm super blessed. I count myself extremely blessed that my mom married a man who was willing to step up and fill that role. He, When they got married, he essentially inherited two teenagers. I was 14, my sister was 11. And he, uh, he had never been married before and he didn't have any kids of his own and had to step into a role of being a dad of two teenagers just right away. And I think about that now as I'm raising my own kids. Flynn is, you know, three and Maggie's two. And I think about all the, the fears and weaknesses and lack of ability I have and all the mistakes I've made. Just in the three years I've been a dad, all the mistakes I've made of trying to figure out how to be a good father and a good example and, and a good teacher and, and all of the things that a dad needs to be. Not just should be, but needs to be for his kids. And I'm so grateful that because of their age, obviously, chances are they're not going to remember all the mistakes I've already made. And I'm going to make plenty more mistakes as they grow up. But uh, I feel like in a lot of ways we've been able to get rid of those uh, early mistakes. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> they're not going to remember, but for my dad... I was 14, so I was fully aware, and, and I have a really good memory, so I was able to, uh, I, I saw the mistakes he made as he had to step into the role of being a dad, and I have tremendous respect and love for my dad, that he was, uh, he was brave enough and willing to step into a role that my mom and my sister and myself needed him. Uh, to fill. He filled that role that we were in desperate need of. And I love him as if he was my own biological father. To me, there's no difference. Um, I honestly forget sometimes that I don't have his genetics. I will literally like, because my dad is bald and <laughs> sometimes I'll be like, am I going to go bald? And uh, forgetting that it's not his genetics I need to be worried about. It's, you know, this the spirit kind of makes up those differences. It really does. Family, which is why, family to me is, is less about who you share blood with, and it's everything about the people that sacrifice and love you and take care of you. That's family. That's family for me. And so uh, because of that belief, my family is incredibly, like, it's, it's a lot bigger than just who I have the same uh, the bloodline with. And I'm super grateful for that perspective. But dad, thank you. 
Thank you for being one of the greatest examples to me of what it means to be a dad, what it means to sacrifice and love for your family, what it means to sacrifice your own personal desires and your own will, and and most importantly, thank you for teaching me what it means, uh, what the atonement means. Thank you for teaching me how to apply the atonement in my life and for for always sharing your testimony, both verbally as well as by living it and being the example that I need as I'm a dad now. Um, just thank you. And I also am so grateful that I also have another dad, uh, David Tebbs, my, my father-in-law, who is everything you could ever hope for in a father-in-law and in a grandpa to your kids. I am just so incredibly blessed for the men in my life who have helped raise me and guide me. And there are so many more um, men in my life who who serve in a fatherly role and have. Um, my grandparents, I, I, I could seriously go on. There's the men that raised me, my young men's leaders, and I uh, have dear friends who have served fatherly roles for me. And seriously, I could do an entire hour-long podcast on the men who have helped raise me and been that example for me. So I just want to, to thank all the men in my life who have been there for me, and, and you know who you are. Thank you so much for the impact you've had on my life because um, it has changed the trajectory of my life, knowing the responsibility I have and knowing how to honor my priesthood and, and understanding the role that I need to play in my own family and uh, being the protector of my family. That was, that was something that I was taught and I observed. So... Thank you, and, and Dad, I love you. So, with that, let's get into this lesson. From 1828 to 1831, the Prophet Joseph Smith received memory revelations from the Lord, including divine counsel for individuals, instructions on governing the church, and inspiring visions excuse me, visions of the latter days. But many of the saints hadn't read them. The revelations weren't, pub weren't yet published, and the few available copies were, were handwritten on loose sheets and that were circulated among members and carried around by missionaries. Then in November 1831, Joseph called a council of church leaders to discuss publishing the revelations. After seeking the Lord's will, these later leaders made plans to publish the Book of Commandments, the precursor to today's Doctrine and Covenants. Soon everyone would be able to read for themselves the Word of God revealed through a living prophet. Vivid evidence that the keys of the mysteries of the kingdom of our Savior are again entrusted to man. For these and many other reasons, saints then and now consider the revelations to be worth the riches of the whole earth. And in the first section, God speaks by his servants and the words they speak in his name. The decision to publish the revelations received by Joseph Smith seemed like an easy one, but some early church leaders weren't sure if it was a good idea, and I would like to say that I think there are some valid reasons that they had their concerns. One concern had to do with imperfections in the language Joseph Smith used to write the revelations. Uh, and I'm going to pause right there. My job is as a writer. I, I write and I edit and I create content. That's, that's what I do every day for my job. And I've been doing that for the last four to five years. And so often if I receive content from someone else, it is my job to make sure that it is, it is, it's as good as it can be. So I can totally understand 
where some of these men had concerns about Joseph's writing. Uh, and I'm making no comment about Joseph Smith's writing. Just in general, if it were my job to to look at the writing and make sure that it was, you know, fit for a general audience, then I would be taking that very seriously. So I understand where we know Joseph Smith, uh, where his education was, and that he, you know, he did not write in the illustrious way that some of the members of the the apostles did or, or the other people, the leaders of the church. Joseph Smith was very straightforward and direct and wrote in a, in a different way, in a different style. So I can understand that concern. Wouldn't be one of my concerns, but I can understand the concern. The revelation in section 67 came in response to that concern. What do you learn about prophets and revelations from verses 1 through 9? What additional insights do you gain from uh, section 68? Before the Book of Commandments was printed, several church leaders signed a written testimony that the revelations of the book are true. And then you can read to see a copy of that. So, all of that to say, I understand there were concerns overall. Uh, when we have concerns, we should be following the revelation. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't you know, you just cast aside concerns either. I think there's that fine balance. Now, some of the people that had concerns, I think it was more of out of um, frustrations. And obviously, some of them became opponents of Joseph Smith over time, right? These were, or the men that were there later just kept poking at his weaknesses and kept looking for weaknesses in Joseph Smith, and that led them astray. But it's a whole other thing entirely that we should be in our callings, in our wards, and, and things like that. It is our duty and our job to be conscious and considerate and think through the problems that come before us. And it shouldn't be just whoever's in charge, they get to make the decision, and then we call it good, but we counsel together. That is what our duties as saints is, and that is how we are able to create a more perfect uh, Zion, whether it's in our communities, in our wards, wherever. We need to counsel together. So there's, I have no problem that there were concerns here, and obviously the end result was that they did decide to publish the Book of uh, Commandments. And so, just something I was thinking about, which is the concern should be addressed and discussed, but it shouldn't be the reason to just shut something down. Uh, also, with God stands by his servants and the words they speak in his name. I've seen this. I've seen countless times in my life where God works through imperfect people to accomplish his means. I've, I have been an imperfect person that's been used to accomplish God's work in some way. One example, I had a dear friend who uh, needed to go and discuss something with the bishop. It was over a repentance matter. And I remember they talked to me about this, about how the bishop had um, used language or, or whatnot that, that could have come off as offensive in, in this meeting. And I remember listening to this individual's concerns and them asking me, I mean, don't you think that that's offensive? And I, and I listened. I said, that is interesting. That's definitely not the way I would have handled it personally. However, they obviously have the keys for the ward and, and uh, to be able to help you through this repentance. And so I would, I would pray and seek help from the Lord. And this individual did that. And while it's true that I think that some of the words used in this particular instance, the language used was something that I personally would have disagreed with on the way it should have been handled. 
because this individual sought the spirit and sought for understanding, they actually were able to come uh, and see eye to eye with where the bishop was trying to help them. And they ended up creating a really great relationship. Uh, there were some cool blessings that followed, actually, in, in the relationship and through the repentance process that would not have been achieved had this individual decided, you know what, I'm offended and I'm leaving and I'm done and, you know, this this imperfect bishop clearly doesn't have the spirit and therefore, and then, you know, lead go down that path of X, Y, Z. We are going to, I can promise you, you're going to, in this church, deal with people who are completely imperfect, who are going to have a personality that's going to grind against yours and it's going to be frustrating. Um, I've had this happen to me. I've had individuals that I've worked with due to either callings or uh, they were in a position of authority and we had to work together and they did things that I completely disagreed with or they said things that were offensive to me and it really frustrated me. And I had a couple different you know, options for how to handle it. But every time I sought, the ex I, I sought to follow the example of my great-grandpa, actually, and I wish I had his journal with me that I could just read the story directly, but I will summarize. He tells the, this story in his journal that when he was around 12-ish, uh, around that age, um, his dad, so my great-great-grandpa, was uh, in charge of something for a state conference, and it was Jay Golden Kimball who was going to be visiting, and... I don't know the details of this, but when Jay Golden Kimball got there, uh, something was was not in accordance with his expectations for the state conference, and so uh, it, he it was he was under the impression that it was my great great grandfather that had messed up, whatever it was, and so he gets onto the the pulpit, and proceeds to rip my great-great-grandpa a new one in front of the entire stake. Uh, something that I think was probably unnecessary and inappropriate that I personally saw, but my great-grandpa talks about in his journal that, uh, because this was back before when, you know, they would go to one session, then they would come home and there'd be a break, then they'd go back to church and do the next session and come back. Uh, it wasn't all done in, in one. And so he talked about how after that first session ended, they all came home and how the kids were very frustrated and you know, felt like it was undeserved, which it was. It was undeserved criticism that had occurred and, and the way it had been handled, they felt like it was inappropriate, so they didn't want to go back to state conference and finish. But my great-great-grandpa said to the kids, I will never let a man come between me and God. So we are going back uh, to church. And so they did, and it was at that next session, someone had, had uh, corrected Jay Golden Kimball in between sessions, and so he actually got up at the beginning of the next session when they were there and he apologized to my great-great-grandpa in front of the whole stake. Now, if they had, and my great-grandpa talks in his journal, that if they had not gone back, if they had followed the temptation to not and to be offended, uh, number one, they would not have seen the apology that would have followed, but number two, it would have set a precedence for them that someone can offend them and that be the excuse for why, you know, they fall off uh, following through on their testimony and, and on their commitments to God. That example lives with me in my life, 
And it's it's it set an extremely important precedent for me because I have been offended. And yet, just like my great-great-grandpa said, I will never allow a man to come between me and God. And so I'm really grateful for that example in my life. And that's something that I wish... Um, I wish more people had great-great-grandpas like that who had set that example for them because I know of far too many people who have allowed a man to become between them and the Lord. And and that's on the individual. Um, obviously, it would be great if we if none of us were ever offended, if we could all just treat each other the way we should treat each other. But because we can't guarantee that, it's on us to make sure that nothing comes between us and God. In the next section, inspiration from the Holy Ghost reflects the will of the Lord. The words in these ver- verses were spoken as Orson Hyde and others were called to proclaim the everlasting gospel by the Spirit of the living God, from people to people and from land to land. How might the declaration in verse 4 help someone who is being sent to preach the gospel? Well, let's read verse 4. And whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord and the power of God unto salvation. So this warrants a question. How do we know that it's the Spirit when we're talking? How do we know for sure that it's the Spirit that's working through us? And my answer to that question is it's always going to follow the fruits. We, if you, um, okay, you've definitely had experiences. I, I know this because otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. It would be completely useless. You've had experiences where you felt the Spirit. You know what the Spirit feels like when you uh, are operating within the Spirit and when you are seeking to share the gospel. You know what it feels like. And for me, I know that I have had to trial and error over my life to learn exactly when it's the Spirit and when it's just me uh, talking or thinking out loud. And, And I've had to learn that. It's been a... Like I said, a trial and error process. It has not come all at once. So n- number one, I would say to get that answer to, to my question, which is how do you know for sure, we have to have experience with the Spirit, which is going to be sometimes you don't have the Spirit with you. And so you need to learn what that's like. But two, if you don't know, then you need to study this out. Make it a priority to know exactly when you have the Spirit and when you don't. But always, it's uh, just like Christ said, you'll know them by their fruits. And so the fruits of the Spirit will be evident through you as you're working within the Spirit. And then it goes on. How do these words apply to you? Think of a time when you were moved upon by the Holy Ghost to say or do something. And it says, it references verse 3, so let's read it. And this is the ensample unto them, that they shall speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. If you have any concerns about sharing the gospel, just remember that God sends His Spirit to guide. So don't fear like, what are you going to do when it's time to share the gospel? Just be, do your best to always have the Spirit in your life. And when the time comes, the Spirit will take over. And you just need to be there. You just need to be a body, present, and living the gospel. What do you find in these verses that can give you confidence to follow spiritual prompting? So, I actually have a, I was thinking of an example I had of when the Spirit worked through me. It was a time in high school I had no idea that the Spirit was using me until later. But I remember, I remember clearly there was a time when I felt like I needed to text a friend, and that was it. It was nothing more than that, just to text this friend. And this was a good friend of mine. It was not uncomfortable at all. I just sent a text to them. Uh, I remember the timing was kind of weird because I wasn't 
Like, there was no reason to text them or anything like that. It's not like I needed them for anything or we were going to hang out, anything like that. But I just remember the thought popped in my head, text your friend and ask how they're doing. Easy enough. So I sent that text. And they had responded with something, you know, like, I'm doing good. How are you? Something like that. And I just said, oh, I'm doing great. Probably playing a video game or something. I can't remember. And that was it. There wasn't anything more than that. And time went on. And it was nearing the end of uh, high school for me. And I remember I received a letter from this friend. And she had said in the letter, I want you to know that you saved my life. And then went on to say that that very day, she'd been considering taking her own life and was looking for a reason not to or someone who cared about her to, to not take her own life. And that's exactly that moment when I had sent that text asking how she was doing. And uh, obviously for me, I was like, well, I can 100 And I remember at the time, I remember thinking, I'm obviously, I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad you're still living because you're a dear friend. But also I remember thinking, it wasn't me at all. It was the Holy Ghost who was reaching out to people who loved this individual to get them to, to recognize, like, they needed to stay. But that was definitely a time. And, and I have a lot more examples that weren't as uh, necessarily as dramatic as that one. But that was a clear time I remember, being in high school and just being at the right place, the right time, and the right state of mind for the Spirit to be able to help out someone else in need. And uh, I, I was... 100% glad to know that I got to be of use in that situation. In the next section, parents are responsible to teach their children. Uh, president Joy D. Jones, primary president, taught a key to helping children become sin resistant. And I love that phrase, sin resistant, is to begin at very early ages to lovingly infuse them with basic gospel doctrines and principles from the scriptures, the articles of faith, for the, the, for the strength of youth booklet, primary songs, hymns, and our own personal testimonies that will lead children to the Savior. So there's a verse in here that I love. It's uh, 68.25. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, or in any of her stakes which are organized, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. It is our responsibility and our duty as parents to teach our children the gospel. We have an obligation to teach them, and th and because we need to teach them, we have an obligation to understand the gospel ourselves. We cannot be able to teach effectively if we don't understand ourselves. So it is imperative that we study daily, one, for understanding for ourselves, but two, to be able to bring the Spirit into our life and to be able to fill that well of... Uh, gospel knowledge that when our child comes to us and asks us a deeply spiritual question for them, something they need the answer to, we are able to help guide them to find the answer for themselves, not just by giving it to them and telling them this is what it is. We need to lead them and guide them along the path, just as we are leading and guiding ourselves. As we are coming to learn how the Savior teaches, we need to teach in that way. And so that's something that I've really been considering, especially as, you know, Flynn is getting older and he's starting to understand more and more. And Maggie is just keeping up right with him because she just wants to copy everything Flynn does. I recognize the important need that I have to make sure that I'm in a place for them that I can always be there. And then at the end, of it, it says, what would you say to a parent who doesn't feel qualified to teach these things to his or her children? And there was actually an example 
that I thought of. I remember um, overhearing a conversation where uh, one of my leaders growing up, um, he had not served a mission. And his kids were coming to the age of serving a mission. And I remember him discussing some of his concerns of, you know, his his sons didn't necessarily, they weren't talking as if they wanted to go on a mission. And it was something that he wanted them to do, but because he hadn't served a mission himself, he felt like it, he was unable to say anything to them on the matter. And I remember thinking, uh, this was before my mission, but I remember thinking, you know, if it were my dad and he hadn't served a mission, but he knew of the importance of going out and, and serving and what that experience would be like, even if he didn't have it for himself, uh, for himself, how important and valuable that would be for me to have a sit down conversation with my dad and for him to talk about his concerns and even his inadequacies of how, of how he felt like he was, you know, unable to talk on the subject because he hadn't served, but how much he loves me and wants the best for me, and that I really should weigh that option. How much more impactful that would be than just uh, either uh, I'm not going to talk to you at all because I didn't serve a mission, therefore I don't want to be a hypocrite, or um, you know I didn't serve a mission, but that's why you need to, right? How much different that conversation could be if it was one of like, son, I love you, and I need to talk to you about something that's really been weighing heavy on my mind. I think it would be great for you to serve a mission. I didn't serve a mission. And here's some areas in my life where I think I would have been stronger in X, Y, and Z if I had served. I think I could have had these blessings in my life that I didn't have because I chose not to serve. And of course, I've still lived a great life. And I have a strong testimony in the gospel. But these are blessings that I want for you. And I want you to consider them and if you don't decide to serve a mission, I'll still love you and there will be no disappointment from me. You'll get no judgment from me. But I love you and I want you to have the best and all the blessings you can possibly receive. That conversation is so much different than just because I didn't do this. And in this example, it's a mission. But there are so many. I mean, just take this more broadly. right? Obviously, you have made mistakes as a parent, as an individual, and now as a parent. You've made mistakes in your life, and I'm sure there are areas where you feel like a hypocrite for trying to teach your children when you may not have lived up to those blessings or lived up to those commandments in your own life at a certain time. That does not make you a hypocrite for trying to help your children and to guide them. And I can tell you, as being, uh, as being a child of my own parents and remembering fully well how they raised me, they were completely imperfect. But I know they loved me. I know they loved me then, and I know they still love me now. And just because of their imperfections, the ones I knew and didn't know, and still don't know, that every time they reached out and had a discussion with me where it was honest and it was open and loving, even if it was something that they they didn't necessarily live up to the full expectations that they had of me, I knew if it came from a place of love, it was something that resonated strongly. So don't ever withhold from your child your own testimony or your own concerns or anything because you feel like a hypocrite. Because I promise you will still have to answer for those sins on your own head if you don't. All right, let's not make it so heavy. That feels just super heavy, but something I feel very passionate about. And like I said, I remember 
being a youth when I had heard of those concerns from that parent and thought, man, if you only knew, of course, now if I'd heard that, I'd probably say something. But at the time, I felt like <laughs> wasn't my place. I was just a kid. Um, there's some final verses. There's, I actually got a ton from the family uh, study, but I don't want to go on for an hour about this. But in this first section, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section uh, 67, verses 10 to 14, pretty much all these verses stuck out to me. So let's go through them first in, sec- in uh, verse 10. And again, verily I say unto you that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am, not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual. Uh, So first, we need to strip ourselves of wickedness to be able to behold God. And that is an incredible promise. My question that I've asked myself this week is, do I have faith in that promise? Do I truly believe that if I strip myself of all wickedness and have nothing but faith and I'm humble, that I could rent the veil and be able to see God? Because to me, that's astounding. If I can't have faith in that, I cannot be able to progress towards that. You cannot progress towards something you don't have faith in. So one, incredible promise. Do we believe it? In verse 12, neither can any natural man abide the presence of God, neither neither after the carnal mind. It is impossible to be able to see God in a carnal state. And just when I think about from a day-to-day perspective, do I feel God in my life every day? And if not, then I think it's time to do a gut check and ask why. Why am I not feeling God every day? Is it because my actions are representing a more more carnal mind? Am I focusing more on the carnal things, on the things that don't actually matter? Am I putting my priorities, uh, are they not in alignment with God? And recognizing that if those things are true, then God will not reveal himself to me out of mercy. It's out of mercy that he won't because I can't abide it. I cannot withstand his glory. So even from just uh, the Holy Ghost with me every day, yeah, we can have the gift of the Holy Ghost and we, we are promised that he'll be with us always. But if we're not living in accordance with those blessings, then out of mercy, the Holy Ghost for both himself and for us is not going to be with us. We have to live in accordance with what we know. In verse 13, you are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. Wherefore, continue in patience until you are perfected. We need to be patient in this process. It is a long, eternal process. So be patient. Be patient with yourself. Recognize that if you make mistakes and you repent, there's a big chance you're going to make those same mistakes again. Don't give up. Don't get mad. Don't fall away. Do not listen to Satan when he says you're not good enough. Because that is the lie he will tell over and over and over again. Do not listen to these lies. Be patient. Keep working because you'll get there. But you will only get there if you stay on the path. The moment you take yourself out of, off the path, you're done. So don't do that to yourself. And finally, in verse 14, let, let not your minds turn back. And when ye are worthy in mine own due time, ye shall see and know that that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith Jr. Amen. My, pres- my mission president told me as I was leaving my exit interview with him, he said, uh, Elder Anderson, if there's anything I could have for you, it'd be that you never, you never take a step backwards. He said, you've come so far in your spiritual journey and you're about to go home and you're going to deal with a whole new set of circumstances and trials. My greatest hope for you is that you would not take, you do not take a step back, that you always take a step forward, even if it's just a little one, but always be progressing forward. And I have 
kept that on my mind ever since I returned from my mission almost almost 10 years ago. Uh, well, no, that's not true because I left in 2012, so it's only been about, what, seven years? But still, in all that time, I've, I've kept that in my mind to never take a step back. And, and that stays with me. So I share those words with you for the same thing. Don't take a step back. And then finally, um, no, not finally. Two things. Two things, all right. First, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 68, uh, 25 to 35, it talks about Zion and creating Zion. And it says, uh, you know, how we can do this for our family. And the last thing it says is, why is the home the best place for children to learn these things? Uh, the verse that I love here is in 68, verse 31. It says, Now I, the Lord, am not well pleased with the inhabitants of Zion, for there are idlers among them, and their children are also growing up in wickedness. They also seek not earnestly the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. Creating Zion is an all-hands-on-deck process. We cannot do it alone. It does not work if only you're doing it. It does not work if, if one family's doing it. If in a ward... There's only a handful of people trying to create Zion. It just, it cannot be done. It is a collective process. We all have to be doing it. So the best place to learn for this lesson is in the home because in the home on a micro level, we can learn how to think beyond ourselves. We can think to think, we can learn to think about the needs of, of each other. Uh, you know the strong families because it's the ones where the parents have taught their children to take care of the family, to love the family, to respect the family. It's not about, you know, never thinking about self. It's not about completely getting rid of self, but it's about taking into consideration the actions that one takes and the influence that has on the family. When everyone in a family is working together to create a happy home, a peaceful home, a home where the spirit can reside, that is a temple. That is a temple on earth. If we were all able to do that, think of if one ward was able to do that, where every family in that ward was working in their own homes to create that Zion-like experience and then came to church every Sunday, they would be sharing that Zion experience collectively together. And in essence, a community would be creating Zion. That is what's going to happen when God comes back. It is what we need to be, it's what we need to be doing right now is working on in our own homes. Create a Zion in your own home. It'll prepare you for when the Lord comes. Finally, now I can say finally, the last thing I want to share is in uh, section 70, verse 14. And this was just separate, just an additional thought, but it says, Nevertheless, in your temporal things, you shall be equal, and this not grudgingly. grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. Uh, my final thought to you is be grateful for what you have. Always be grateful for the blessings you're given, and... Don't despise others for their abundance. We are all blessed in different ways. We're all blessed in varying degrees. But you are never going to be able to get more blessings if you just sit and think about how much someone else has over you. And I've seen this far too often where the, the green monster, the jealousy sets in, and someone actually starts to forget their own blessings. And it could be, you know, abundant blessings that are amazing and anyone would be grateful for. And because of jealousy, they ignore those blessings and only think of what they don't have. It is a destructive thing. Satan would love for you to just think about what other people have and what you don't have. But it makes you a far uh, better person and a far happier person if instead you're always grateful and you're always working towards um, 
seeking after both the blessings of others and then also the betterment of yourself. And you cannot do that by just sitting and being jealous of what someone else has or, or wanting something else that someone else has and how they shouldn't have it and you, sh- you should. So the best way to counteract that jealousy is to be sincerely grateful for what you do have. Thank you for inviting me to your family room discussion. What ideas, questions, or insights did you have from Doctrine and Covenants section 67 to 70? Until we meet again, have a blessed week.